and welcome to the Sifted Podcast. I'm Amy, Sifted's editor. And I'm Eleanor, Sifted's deputy editor. And at Sifted, we report on Europe's tech and startup sector. And every week on this podcast, we bring on some of our journalists and we talk about the crunchiest and most interesting stories that they've worked on in the week. This week, we're going to be talking about Klarna's latest earnings announcements for the first six months of 2022, where they disclosed that their losses more than tripled in that time. But in some happier news, we're also going to be talking about a couple of very cool hardware-related companies that have raised funds this week. But the main chunk of the show is going to be devoted to our latest investigation, which Eleanor worked on with one of our reporters, Freya Pratty, our resident super snooper, uh, which is all about the mysterious story of a $5 billion loan that went missing and a VC fund that promised female founders millions in investment, but never delivered them. Stay tuned for that. This one is going to blow your little minds. Something else that happened last week that perhaps should have blown our minds but sadly didn't was some gossip that we included in our new VC-focused newsletter Upround, which uh, got the VCs talking on Twitter. We shared the news that apparently one partner of a London-based VC firm was last seen wandering around naked at their off-site. Take your guess about who that was. And also, any tips for this week's version of Upround, or next week, or any time in the future, you can always email Amy and I. We want to hear all the juicy, juicy details of what goes on behind closed doors in the VC world. Okay, but enough talk of naked people. Let's talk about the news. This week, the news broke that the by now pay later giant Klarna, once upon a time Europe's most valuable tech company, no longer, has seen its losses more than triple this year. Klarna is not having a great one, is it? So yeah, so this week Klarna released its financial results for the first six months of 2022. That saw its losses triple to around $580 million dollars. This comes after a pretty tough six months for the company. They've had to lay off 10% of their global workforce, which is about 700 people. And then they also raised an 800 million round in earlier this summer, but at a 85% less valuation. Obviously, Klarna was very eager to paint this in as best a light that they could. So they talked a lot about how revenue had actually grown by 24%. And the CEO, Sebastian Simiatkowski, loves to talk about Klarna on Twitter. And he talked about how this just showed surging adoption in the UK and the US. And they said that they had built a user base of 30 million people in the US, which is pretty impressive. Okay, so Klarna is obviously, they've done a lot of the textbook stuff you're meant to do in a situation like this. They've cut employees. They've raised more money to get them through this tricky period. They've taken the valuation cut. What happens next for the business? Totally. So Simiatkowski said in a statement with the results that for now, for the last couple of years, investors were really prioritizing growth and now they want to see profitability. So obviously Klarna is going to be trying to get to that important milestone. Um, but obviously it's going to be more difficult in a, an environment where we have inflation and higher interest rates. So buy now, pay later startups like Klarna thrived in this low interest rate environment where it doesn't 
cost much to offer credit like they do to consumers. But obviously, with interest rates going up across economies around the world, that uh, puts pressure on their margins. So we will see what happens when they have their next results out. On to some more positive news. We had the story that a startup called Topi has raised $45 million. So that's in debt and equity. They didn't share the breakdown to grow its hardware as a service business. What's hardware as a service, Eleanor? What is hardware as a service or has as some no one in the world is trying to make happen? Oh my surely. God. Miriam, who wrote the story, had that in some point in the story. And I was like, sorry, Miriam. I'm tossing out hats. <laughs> um, so basically what Topi is doing is they are helping businesses rent equipment like smartphones or desks or screens or coffee machines to companies from retailers and manufacturers. And they say that this could considerably cut down on e-waste. Obviously, if you're not buying all of these screens and equipment for your office, that means that you can give it back when you're done renting it. And so basically what Topi does is they're building the infrastructure to make that lending happen. So they bake stuff into their like credit assessment or a risk assessment that helps that retailer and manufacturer understand what the risk of renting to that company might be. Interesting. So Topi isn't actually buying a whole load of screens and smartphones itself. It's just enabling other people who sell them to know whether they want to lend to, for example, Sifted or whether we're totally dodge and you don't want to do that. Exactly. Got it. Why is that beneficial for businesses right now? So first, it means that businesses can be more asset light, right? They obviously don't have to buy that equipment and put it on their balance sheet, which can reduce risk and it can be more flexible. They can scale up and they can scale down as growth requires. And as I said before, it's also really important from the point of view of sustainability. So Topi is partnering with traded merchants who specialize in refurbishing devices and selling them on the secondary market. So they really want for all used devices rented on Topi to be refurbished and sold on or properly recycled. Nice. And it's a, it is a big problem, electronic waste. Apparently, per year, 50 million metric tonnes of electronic waste end up in landfill, which is the equivalent of seven kilograms per person. And this is part of the wider trend we're seeing around renting rather than buying things, isn't it? Yeah. Funnily, I once met an e-waste baron in Japan who had an e-waste empire in Iran. But that is a very different story. That is a story for another day. <laughs> um, Other startups in Europe that are doing this are Grover, which is another Berlin-based uh, unicorn, this one, that rents out electronics to people and businesses and has raised several hundred millions of dollars. But I guess the thing that's different between Topi and these other companies that we've seen come on the scene is that Topi doesn't actually hold any inventory, right? And the founders say that a lot of these other hardware-as-a-service competitors has... Um, only operate in one industry. So maybe they're only dealing with smartphones or they're only dealing with one certain type of equipment. Um, but Topi wants to diversify more by actually just providing that platform for lending. And now onto one more story before we go on to talking with Freya. Another startup announced fundraising this week that is producing its own hardware. Tell us a little bit about Neurofenix, Amy. Yeah, so Neurofenix is a UK startup that has raised $7 million to basically develop a product that helps stroke patients recover faster. 
So this is a big problem because there aren't enough occupational therapists in lots of countries. Those are the people that would come to your house or work with someone in a hospital to help them kind of get their mobility and things like that back after they've suffered a stroke or an injury. And so 75% of stroke and traumatic brain and spinal injury survivors face long-term disabilities because they basically haven't had good enough rehab. So neurophenics is hoping to kind of fill in some of the gaps in service there. And how it works is that it has designed this portable handheld device that people who suffered from strokes will use alongside an app on the phone that kind of gamifies the whole process so it makes it maybe a bit more fun, a bit more engaging, a bit more likely that people actually complete the treatment and it gives them real-time feedback on, I guess, the exercises and things that they're doing. But I guess Neurophenics is also not the only company working in this space and there even has been a pretty big European success now. Um, headquartered in the United States. Yeah, so that is Hinge Health, which was originally a UK company, but as you said, has now moved stateside. And then there's other ones like there's a Portuguese unicorn called Sword Health and a German company called Kaya Health, which are all kind of working on similar things. But it's really interesting. I'm, so Hinge Health is working on musculoskeletal conditions, and then Neurophenix is just focusing on people who have suffered from strokes and traumatic brain injuries. Is there a big enough market for these niches? So in the UK alone, 100,000 people have strokes each year, which costs the UK health service £3 billion. Pounds. And on top of that, it sets back the economy £4 billion in the lost productivity of the people who've had the strokes and also their kind of the, the care that they then require afterwards. So yes, it is a big, big thing. Okay, on to our main story of the day. We are joined by Freya Pratty, who worked on this one with Eleanor. And it's a story about how a number of female founders were promised investment for the businesses that they were building, and the money never, ever arrived. They were promised this cash by a fund called Athena, which once you started looking into it, turned out to be quite the mystery, right? So Eleanor, how did you hear about the story? Yeah, so I heard about this story from a participant in this group of advisors and female founders who came to me and said, look, I was involved in this thing. I got this term sheet and I had spoke to several other women who participated in this and no one has ever received cash from this fund. And this person said, maybe Sifted should look into this. Maybe there's something there. So who was kind of the, the face of this fund? Who was getting in touch with these women and promising them money? Yeah, so all of this started in August of last year, around about. And there was this woman named Louise McCarthy, who's from the UK. She's in her 50s and has had a long career in a lot of big corporates like Aviva, HSBC. She's worked with Bain Consulting. And she got in touch with a bunch of founders kind of through her network and then other people introduced their friends and their contacts to her. And she told everyone that she was working on this new fund and it was going to be a fund for female founders at very early stages. And all these women were brought together. So this was both founders and then also advisors. They were brought together, put in a WhatsApp group and told that 
Athena would lead their entire round, so there would be no other investors involved in their rounds. Athena was willing to write them checks, you know, as small as 500k, but up to over a million. And they started this community. They started these weekly check-ins. They had talks by industry experts. A lot of the people who participated in this, who were involved in this, actually told me that that sort of community stuff was really helpful, and, and they met some amazing people through the program. But on the flip side, the money just didn't come, right? Like, how how long were some of these people waiting for totally. the dosh? So, the founders that were involved in this program were all given term sheets from Athena, and the money for Athena, the fund itself, was supposed to come from an investment company called Evrensel Capital Partners. And Freya will talk a little bit more about Evrensel, ECP, in a little bit. So they got these term sheets and some of them signed them. Uh, Some of the participants in the program were a little bit skeptical of the background of the fund, the professionalness of the fund. And so they actually stepped back and didn't sign the term sheets and and distance themselves from the program. But one of the things that happened to the women that did sign the term sheets was that many of them were locked into exclusivity clauses, which means that they weren't allowed to go to other investors for a certain set period of time and ask for other investments. So they couldn't shop around, right? So Freya, tell us about Anthony Moore, the man behind Everensill. Yeah, so as Eleanor said, Athena was due to be funded by an investment company called Everensell Capital Partners, ECP, which is run by a man called Anthony Moore. He's British, but he's based in Turkey. And ECP on their website say they invest in a, a whole range of sectors, things like the environment, hydrogen, hospitality, gold mining, a real range of things. So Anthony had met Louise, the woman who was going to run Athena, via LinkedIn. They're both very big on LinkedIn and post a lot on there and have a lot of followers. So that's how they'd met. And Anthony had said that ECP would provide funding to Athena for these like female-founded startups. And it seems a bit strange to me that Moore would get in touch with this woman who has no experience of running a fund? What did Moore say when we asked him about that? Yeah, so over email, he said to us that her business experience was vastly more important than her having any direct investment experience. We should also say that we spoke to Louise on the phone and we also communicated with her over email. And she also said that she had 35 years of experience working with female entrepreneurs and that she directly understood the struggles that women face in the workforce and that she saw working with female founders in this way as a as a way that she could give back. Yeah, they didn't end up giving back, did they? Because the money never, ever came. What did Louise McCarthy know at this point in time in terms of when the money was coming or not? So Anthony told us that ECP was waiting on a 10-year loan of 5 billion euros, part of which would have gone on to fund the Athena companies. The first section of that was due to arrive by mid-November last year, but it still hasn't arrived. And he's now launching a legal case against the lender over what he says was a breach in terms of contract. So as Moore said, the first money was supposed to arrive in November. And one woman, a founder that I spoke to, Claire Walsh, said that she was told that the money would be in her bank account in December. And she even had the celebration with her co-founder at Christmas to celebrate. Finally, we're going to get the funding. And then it just kept getting pushed farther and farther back. 
some founders in the program actually hired staff with the thought that they would have the funding very soon and then they were forced to lay off that staff. And then on April 1st, which some of the people who I spoke to said was a little bit of an ironic date, Louise McCarthy sent a message to the WhatsApp group of Athena participants telling everyone to look for a plan B. She reiterated to us that the term sheets were not legally binding. And she also said that Anthony Moore kept promising her that the money would come. And Anthony Moore told us that the lender had said to him that they would make amends. And that's why he then let the process roll on for a while, even though he wasn't receiving the funding. So getting a 5 billion euro loan is pretty mega. How could this guy, Anthony Moore, secure something like that or seem like he might be able to secure something like that? So Anthony Moore is a 76-year-old former Goldman Sachs banker. He worked at Goldman Sachs in the 80s. And as we said, he's now based in Turkey. He's, he is British, but he's based in Turkey. He's been covered by some media previously. So uh, an Indian paper described him as a king in the financial market and said he's like a fancy bottle of wine that is only more treasured with time. So he's had some colourful coverage before. And yeah, he set up ECP in 2019. And in our reporting, we then went back and spoke to some people who'd worked at ECP prior to Athena. And people who worked with Anthony Moore before Athena described similar experiences to what we heard with Athena. We had another person who worked there and was put in charge of some projects. And Moore said that funding would arrive for those projects. At that time, funding was meant to come from Saudi Arabia, but that then fell through. So we uncovered a few previous instances that looked a lot like the Athena case. And what was Anthony Moore's response to those? So in response to the Saudi Arabian funding, he said that it had been in discussions, but the investor had then declined to pursue the deal further. I guess the other thing, obviously these were people who spoke to us off the record, right? But there were things about ECP in the public domain as well that also raised some red flags for participants of Athena and that made some people step back from the program. So one of those was a UK medical device company called TrueSpine, which is a listed company. And last year in April, they put out a statement that said that they were supposed to receive 250k pounds in investment from ECP, but that money had never come through. Moore told us that those reports about TrueSpine were correct. The funds had never come through, but he said that that was for Various reasons of which the company is well aware and didn't provide any other detail on that. So what's the impact of all of this been on those female founders who were in that WhatsApp group? And is there anything we can learn from it? So it's actually been pretty sad for some of the founders. Um, Claire Walsh, who I spoke about before, she's just given up her entrepreneurial ambitions for the time being. She's recently had a baby and she's focusing on being a mom now. Her baby is very cute. And other founders are still having a really hard time going out and trying to find funding. Other founders are just looking for funding in other ways or have pushed back their plans. But I think that what we can take from this is that oftentimes early stage founders, you know, they want to protect their business and grow their business at all costs. And so if someone comes to them and says that they have money, of course, you want to open that door and you want to talk about that possibility, right? Which puts them in a potentially very vulnerable situation. But I think the other thing that this story shows is, you know, it's easy to paint the story as like, 
oh, there are these female entrepreneurs. Female entrepreneurs already don't get as much funding as male-run teams, and they were just victims of this. But actually, there were a fair number of women who stepped away from this project at the very beginning because they went online and they looked at stuff like the news about True Spine. So it also shows that just doing your due diligence at the beginning, which can be as easy as a Google search and just asking around, can be a very powerful weapon. Yeah, and it's worth saying that this is unfortunately not the only case of investors promising, especially female founders, but all kinds of founders, money that they don't actually have. And it's perhaps a lot more common than some people realise. So as Eleanor says, do your due diligence, founders. Thank you so much for that, Freya and Eleanor, and for all your super snooping you did on that piece. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all of our coverage on sifted.eu. And please don't forget to take our listener survey and let us know how you think we're doing. You'll get a month of free membership if you take it. And that is linked in the podcast description along with all of the articles that are mentioned here. One of the final plugs we will do for the Sifted Summit, our big two-day event happening on the 5th and 6th of October in London. We've got almost our full cast of speakers round tables, live podcast recording, the whole agenda can be found on the website which is summit.sifted.eu. We would really love to meet lots of you in person. Bye for now. Ciao.